I'm your host, Grant Trimble, and welcome to the very first episode of Figurisms. In this show, I talk to all kinds of creatives, such as models, photographers, painters, etc., that utilize nudity in their work. The whole purpose of this is to try and understand with greater depth the message, meaning, and choices behind using nudity in this respect by fostering a greater comprehension of the decisions to travel this path. These topics personally interest me as I myself fall into this category, but the motivations behind why people are drawn to this can be very wide-ranging and can span from the deeply personal to the desire to make bigger statements to address the public as a whole. My hope is to alleviate some of the stigmas surrounding this endeavor, as well as try and add some context to the greater cultural dialogue surrounding sexuality. My first guest is Rory Yum. Rory is best known for being a freelance art model, but as I'm sure you'll see, this may be a misleading or limiting term. Although she has been globetrotting nonstop around the world, living out of her backpack for the past five years, she is currently in North Carolina, where she is working at an art space. This is where our conversation begins, but in this episode, Rory talks about a wide range of topics that include her journey to becoming an art facilitator, her collaboration style, her identity as an androgynous queer woman, the struggle to represent herself, social pressures, nude beaches, double standards, and the list continues. There is a lot in this episode, so much so that I've picked up on new things each time I've listened to this while putting it together. Since this is the first episode, there are bound to be insufficiencies on my part, so I want to apologize in advance for this. I promise I'm going to get better. But that being said, Rory offers an incredible wealth of knowledge relating to her experiences that, in my opinion, are priceless. This is a long-form interview where we talk about nuanced subject matter, so my suggestion is to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Rory Yum as we wade into these topics I mentioned and more. You're from Florida, and you've been traveling kind of nonstop. You've had the opportunity to work with a lot of incredible photographers. Um, and right now you're have settled kind of in North Carolina. And I think it it's important for the people listening to kind of know what has made you sort of want to settle down there and what, what really, what really kind of has drawn you to that. Oh man, I'm not settling though. That's the thing. I could be wrong. It could just all be sort of perception um, on, you know, kind of internet perception, so to say, social media, but you yeah. kind of seem to be, a, a have, uh, stayed in one place longer than you generally do. Is that, is that accurate or that, that could be completely inaccurate. So, um, oh, you know, kind of why, why North Carolina and, you know, why, yeah. why these projects? Uh, well, Okay. So I'll back out. I'll start with the introduction and then answer that. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I'm Rory Yum. I'm a traveling model, which kind of sounds redundant. I'm a model that travels, (laughs) and I primarily am a nude art model that looks like a variety of things. Um, 
in America that would be perceived as a porn star, which it's not. Um, not that there's anything wrong with uh, nudity in relation to sex and sex related to nudity, but there's also a division between those two. Um, which we will definitely di- dive into. Yeah so, yeah. so I definitely want to get into that. I started modeling when I was 21, and I think this year I'll be turning 29. And for about five years, I didn't have a home base and just traveled from space to space, living like a turtle out of my backpack. And uh, over the years, I've met a lot of really interesting creative folk. And this last October, uh, decided to take on a project that would have me settle in some ways in an area for a fixed period of time, which was a new concept after having traveled 365 days out of a year. Yeah, live it, like you said, living out of your backpack. Yeah. And I think it's funny now looking at staying somewhere for five months, I feel like I was a little bit more productive <laughs> having traveled 365 days out of the year Um, I felt so much more productive, like I was getting so many more things done versus, you know, staying stationary somewhere for five months. But even then there, it's not exactly staying stationary because I still travel once a month and for about 10 days. So I'm gone for about a third of the month. So even then I'm not still. Yeah. Um, So what you were, you were talking a little bit about um, this kind of art space, though, that you're that you're part of. What what is your role in in that? I am the studio manager slash art director slash person who wears many hats. What's needed, and I facilitate. So I watched this um, documentary called Twenty Feet from Stardom, and it was about backup singers that had sung on really well-known songs. Take Sweet Home Alabama, for example. The chorus part of that song, you're actually singing along with the backup singers, not the people that are in the band that everyone knows. And their backup singer's role is just as important to that song as the person who's singing that song. And what I realize is sometimes the roles that are behind the scenes that helped a painting be completed or helped a music video um, run smoother or, you know, suggested a concept outside of what the vision already was, but helped bring that vision in a full circle, completed it. Like those jobs are just as important. They may not get the credit or they may not be in the limelight, but I call it an art facilitator. And that's something that I'm really good at is just finding tiny details or little areas where people, you know, are spread too thin and just couldn't focus all of their attention and effort in that. And so I just pick up the slack and help the day run smoother. Do you feel that you are able to utilize more of your skills in this position than, than you do uh, while, while modeling? Have you been able to develop, I guess, even develop more skills? Sadly, the thing about modeling is it's really limiting. Like, the typical role of a model is to show up and be a human mannequin. And since that is 
that job title, what I was offering that was outside of that was ideas, concepts, uh, my own posing style. Um, I would even come up with, like, I would be an art director for a shoot. I'd say, hey, I looked at your portfolio. This is the aesthetic that you have. Here's an idea that suits that. You may not have ever thought of that, but here are all of the, you know, wardrobe or the styling or, you know, I got a makeup artist that will bring this idea to life. So now you're stepping just slightly outside of, you know, your your go-to comfort zone of things that you've already accomplished. And you're creating something a little bit outside of that that's bigger or a higher production than what you thought you were capable of based on my like sheer enthusiasm and, you know, just desire to make whatever it is that I'm, I'm working on, you know, 110%. And so people would try new things or change their perspective slightly, you know, if they were open to those things. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, because I think I'm a woman in a man's world, um, I would be met with defensiveness and uh, no, I'm doing things my way rather than openness. And so that would be the limiting part. Because when two people put their heads together, you get a bigger, grander project as a result. Yeah, the the sum are greater than its parts. Yeah. And some people have a really tough time putting aside an ego to become part of a team and want to have more control over their projects and their projects suffer as a result. Sometimes, not all times. This kind of, uh, I guess, this kind of stretching almost, like you're you're kind of stretching your role, like you said. You you find some some aspects of of modeling kind of limited. You know, you you mentioned you show up and you're kind of this mannequin. And at what point did you really almost consciously kind of start trying to stretch those boundaries? Because you've been modeling, I think you said for eight years now. You was there a time when you kind of were like, you know what, I I kind of want more than this. Let me sort of push the roles a little bit. Well, think about the experience that you had working with me. Like, from my perception of that, we had a conversation. um, I felt that you trusted me based on the portfolio of work that I had. And so when I made a suggestion, you didn't get defensive or think that I was um, telling you that you were wrong. You were like, hey, based on your portfolio, this person's experience working with many people, many different setups, I trust this person and their suggestion. And maybe I don't see what they're talking about, but I'm going to listen and try it and see what the result is. And if I like it, I'll continue that rabbit hole. If I don't, I'll tweak it until we can compromise and find something. That's my work style is collaborative. I'm not trying to suggest something to you. And then we center my point of view over yours. I'm suggesting something that may be on the right or the left of what you've already clearly defined as a hallway. And instead of just going from point A to point B, a very well-known, well-walked path in your repertoire of things that you've got, why don't we see what's in this door down the hallway? I mean, it's in the same channel of what you're interested in, but it's just slightly outside. No, absolutely. One of those, like, it's telling when you book a shoot, the language that someone uses with you, like how open they're going to be. And I have also made it really important, you know, on my profile on Model Mayhem, where you can book a lot of work as a freelance model, um, or on Instagram, for example, where, again, I get a lot of work. You know, it says that I'm collaborative. 
And when I write to people or they write to me about working, I, I state how important it is to me to feel like I have the space to say, you know, I'm a part of the creative process. Sure, you can ask me to stand against a wall, but the reason why you're hiring me is not because I'm just going to stand against a wall and say, what do you want me to do? I'm bringing me. And if you don't provide space for me to be able to have input, then we're not going to be able to work together. I don't care how much money you give me. I'm not here for you to stand there and tell me exactly what you want me to do, exactly how you want me to do it. I'm a part of this collaboration process because it's my face and my body that's attached to this. So I feel that I need to be comfortable with it. With that being said, there've been select projects where I've looked at a person's book of work and I go, oh, I really trust this person creatively. So I'm going to give them the creative power to say, hey, I need you to do this or hey, I need you to do that. Because their projects seem very specific and require that kind of attention to detail. And you want to be part of that particular project it speaks to you maybe in a certain way yeah like a, a better more clearly defined example of that is um Roth is a really great guy and I like working with him a lot um, but he has a very specific style so I ask him to look at the mood board of what's currently inspiring him so that I can kind of get into his creative mind space and then I conform what I'm doing to his idea and when he fine tunes, like I make a pose and he fine tunes it, can you move your finger? Can you move your toe? Can you change your face? I don't fight him about it. I go, you know what? This isn't about me. He has a vision. He knows what he's after. And with that being said, he also shows me the respect to go, hey, Murray, um, I'm going to trust your vision here. So if you want to get up on the platform or the stage that I've built and try some different body shapes, you know, have at it and we'll see like what works. And then once you get into a position that I like, we'll, we'll perfect it. And that's a, that's a collaboration that we've built over time. The first time that we worked together, it wasn't like that. It was me trusting him and what he wanted. But again, his portfolio spoke to me and said, you know, this is a collective of work that, you know, has a very um, specific style. I trust it. You know, he has a whole team of people that he's working with. It's not the same vein as like working with a person that their portfolio is, I've put this model in front of a white backdrop and, you know, it, it's more about the model moving and how they're posing than it is like the lighting or I built a set or you know, I have a big concept or anything like that. So those scenarios are totally different. Like if someone hires me in the second scenario then a lot of the creativity rests on my shoulder to make the picture interesting. And if you don't give me um, creative leeway or say or empowerment, then you're going to get the same boring picture that you have in your portfolio. And that's where the ego check needs to come. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where? At what point did nudity start playing a role in your modeling? Was it immediately? Or is that how you were draw, kind of pulled into it? Or... Kind of it's actually explain. really funny. <laughs> like, um, I have always been tall and lanky, and one of the quote-unquote compliments that people would pay me as a kid was, "Hey, you're gonna grow up and be a model, or you should be a model." And I think that people have this perception that it's a compliment, but it's really not because it's limiting. It's like, well, what if I wanted to be a rocket scientist? 
Or what if I wanted to play basketball? You're or not, what if you're I not allowed. To you have to be a model because you're tall. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm tall and I'm, you know, I look in this certain manner that society, when you open up a magazine or you turn on the TV or you watch a movie, you know, it's a perpetual cookie cutter stereotype of what Hollywood sells us as, as what we should look like. So I'm a tall, thin, uh, white passing woman, um, hetero passing woman at that, you know, and you keep seeing this like cookie cutter example of what a, a woman identity should look like. And, you know, growing up, that was reinforced by people paying me this compliment you should be a model. You should be a model. And I think in their brains, they were like, we're complimenting you. We're telling you that you're pretty and that you're pretty enough to be in these places on these altars and these pedestals to turn on the TV and see you. But in reality, it felt really limiting. Like, shut up. We don't care what you want or who you are or what you can bring to the table or what you can offer. You're pretty. That's all you're allowed to be. The end. And so I rebelled really hard against that. I was the kid that was climbing the trees. I was the kid that came home covered in mud. I was a kid that just wanted to go and do all of the other things that I was told I wasn't allowed to do because I just needed to be pretty. Yeah, that and, was that was good enough. Just being pretty was good enough and kind of your enough of a contribution, so to say. Yeah, it, I just I couldn't get behind it and and immediately I'm like a nonconformist. So if you tell me to do something, everything inside of me is like, no. <laughs> um, so at some point, I was probably 18 or 19, and I got scouted. And I was kind of like, mm, you know, maybe I'll give this a try because I, I really don't like saying no to something if I haven't experienced it or given it a fair try. So I, I had an agency and we butted heads a lot because it was like, I don't care what you want or um, how you want to be interpreted or perceived. We're sending you to this job, get the job, make us money because that's what you're here for. And I was like, oh, so shut up and be pretty all over again. Everything that I thought I would hate about it, I hated. And I'm, I'm also not a very effeminate person. And that was another thing that I struggled with. I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to wear makeup and all these kind of like really fussy clothes. And I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about that. Um, and it felt like a lot of compromise for them and for things that I didn't want or didn't like and no compromise or space for me. Like, as I said, when I came in and I said I wanted to cut my hair short, they fought me about it. And they were like, there are no successful models with short hair. And I said, Twiggy. And then there was no response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a you give them an example and it's. Yeah. Well, I, I think I also surprised them. I don't think that they expected that. Yeah, that, um, that level of independence, maybe. They're just kind of maybe used to people falling <laughs> in line. <laughs> yeah, and that, I guess, has also been another one of my problems is, like, as a woman, traditionally we are uh, more accommodating. So if someone says, hey, you're taking up space, or hey, you're requesting something, get back in line. Most women will do so. And I'm just kind of like, why? Well, but just, really, why? <laughs> yeah, for that, yeah, no, absolutely, completely. I, it, what kind of pops into my head there? I know there's a quote, and I don't remember who it's from, but it, it's uh, you might know, but it's the well-behaved women rarely make history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. I it don't. usually comes up in reference to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I mean, if I if I said yes, then I'd be lying to you. I don't. I don't know who it was, but <laughs> but um. So then, so you kind of got scouted, and you you were. 
you've, you were very much pushed to kind of model, 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 and really resisted that urge. And, and in large part, it seems who you, who you saw yourself and who you wanted to be wasn't being represented in that world. Is no, that- they were just constantly at odds at each other. So eventually I, I left the agency. Um, after asking if I could get a haircut and they were like, no, um, I just came back in. I had shaved my head and decided I, I was just going to go freelance mall and do whatever I wanted to do. And it was, were so, you, how old were you at this point? Um, it was about 21 at that point. Um, and so at the, at the like 18, 19, when I'd been scouted, I was just dipping my toes in the water. I hadn't really done many jobs. I'd gone and like went to castings, but just wasn't really aware of the community. I didn't have enough experience. What, what, then, what were the jobs that you were, were, that you had gotten before you started freelance modeling? Like as an example. Um, so in Orlando, Florida, there's a lot of like universal studios is there. There's a lot of more commercial, um, projects, something that, that people that are not part of the industry might understand is like, if you look at the target ads where you see women wearing PJs or like, uh, shirts that target makes stuff like that, those jobs are there. And, you know, so they need like girl next door looks. So me with my longer hair fit that, that prototype, that like generic pretty girl next door kind of thing. And when I pitched having my hair cut, I would have been more, I don't really like this word, but in the industry, they use it a lot edgy. I would have been, you know, something that's, that's a little bit outside of norm um, with this like sharp haircut, strong jawline, very tall, more masculine androgyny kind of look. And they were trying to, to soften that and make it more feminine, make it more, um, you, you, there, you need to appeal to like, kind of the masses, like the, the mass concept of what a woman looked like, which was... Yeah. And it's weird because there, there are two types of models. You have like the Kate Moss model, who's a name brand and, and is hired for her being her. And then you have the model that is lesser known and wouldn't stick out in a, in a crowd. I mean, not that she's not pretty, but she wouldn't stick out because she looks more... Um, there's just nothing that's truly like identifiable or remarkable other than her being pretty. And um, those models tend to get a lot of jobs because you wouldn't notice that they're the same model in five different adverts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you obviously notice when Kate Moss is in something, it's, it's Kate yeah. Moss. Yeah. You get one or the other, like in the modeling industry, you either get to be a name brand person and people are hiring you to be that brand or you get to be this completely malleable, like cookie cutter thing that we can just, you know, put into anything. And you wouldn't really notice that it's the same person over and over again. So that was your, so they were world trying to market me there. Yeah. And I wanted to be, you know, who I was, was the reason why you were coming to me versus me fitting into all of these different, you know, same role over and over and over again. Well, that's a pretty difficult space to really try and navigate trying to figure out how to be yourself in the world is an incredibly difficult process. And in my personal opinion, um, (laughs) it, it really is. It's, it's difficult to say when everyone's telling you, Hey, it's like, you know, go to college and do this. It's, it's that kind of mentality of like, go to college, get a degree and follow this path that's kind of laid out in front of you. And when you go, you know what? I, I get it. I'm not saying it's bad, but I don't want to do that. That sounds like hell. And and I've I've been there with various jobs and stuff like that, kind of reluctantly being drugged to 
pursue these things that I didn't really care about and that I were, were really just kind of created a living hell for myself, you know, and to have the, to have the strength and the energy to kind of push past that and say, no, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to try and do it the way that I want to. And I, I could fail miserably or it could be something that's successful. Uh, it w I mean, did, is that kind of, I'm speaking from personal experience, but is that kind of somewhat what it, the process there, you know, of like that pressure to kind of conform and then say, no, I'm going to do it my way. Um, I know these seem like side tangents. I say sometimes things that help me figure out the wording that would help others understand what I'm talking about. So my best friend is really sensitive and it's hard for her to, to fall off of that path that clearly is defined for you by like what's correct in society. She feels it and is like, oh, you know what? Actually, I need to go to college and then changes what she's doing to conform to that idea. I luckily missed out on that. Like I say it in a more uh, colorful way other times where I, I just was born with the I don't give a fuck button. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that is essentially what the role of culture is. And even why it can become very oppressive is that it says, hey, the way that I kind of define culture is, hey, this is how we do things around here. So mm -hmm. for a group of people, you know, they try to essentially, there's a, a culture that naturally evolves that says, hey, do this. And if you kind of go outside of that, hey, kind of get back in line because, you know, that causes problems in this world that we're trying, that we're, you know, we're trying to operate in. And I, I think yeah. a lot of people feel that that pressure and it, it does take a lot to just say, uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I refuse. It's way, to me, it just becomes, comes down to something where it's way too painful to kind of conform to that. And yeah, like your, your call to authenticity is more important and yields a greater, um, return in the sense that like fulfillment for me, like when I was looking at, you know, shoots as an experiment shoots that, um, I had, a little bit more creative freedom or got excited because, you know, Hey, I have space to make a suggestion and the person doesn't, you know, say that it's stupid or gets defensive. Like I'm telling them that they're doing something wrong. I just made a, a simple suggestion, um, you know, in shoots that, you know, I had more say or felt empowered to be able to say these things. And I was more involved. The results were better. They were two heads brought together to bring one idea to life. Um, I felt more involved. I felt like I was a part of the process. And I looked at the images themselves at the very end and was always impressed because even if I made a suggestion, the person could also make a suggestion on top of that. So it doesn't have to be about me and my suggestion. It's about what we're building together. And at the end of the day, I might be physically exhausted or even mentally exhausted, but I would go to bed so excited and I would wake up the next day so excited because I was creatively fulfilled and empowered by the people that I was working with and collaborating with, which is what kept me on the road for so long. Literally, the people, the creatives that I got the opportunity to work with, talk to, the projects I was being um, a part of, and like those things ultimately fulfilled me far more than the things that society told me would fulfill me. I getting a job and going to college and then getting a, you know, the bigger job, et cetera. Like those are just not things that, that feed into my call to authenticity. Sure. Having a home is great. And, you know, having that as a peace of mind, you know, 
when you go out of the, of your front door every day, there are a million things that are coming at you that demand attention, um, energy, and thought power. And how much of how much of energy, attention, thought power do you want to give to you know conforming in versus feeling authentic? And how much are you going to get back as a result? And I'm constantly analyzing those things, like. If I wear the shirt that has a skull on it, sure, there will be some people that will look at that and go, well, that's inappropriate. But does it make me feel um, more fulfilled wearing that shirt than those people made me feel negatively about me wearing it? Yeah. And that's how I kind of judge what choices that I'm making are also not hurting people, which is another important thing. You know, I don't mind stepping outside of the lines and not conforming. I just don't, I'm, I don't have that sensitivity bar. And I'm really grateful that I was born without it because I wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things that I'm doing without, without having that, um, or not having that sensitivity bar. So you really feel that you were born without it? I'm always in that way. I wish I could credit some of the, the things to my parents. It's more like in spite of, not, not in a negative. So in spite would be like the in a juxtaposition of like, this is the example that my parents gave me. And this is what I chose to be. For example, my parents, uh, when I was growing up, my mom was 21. My dad was 21. They had me and then they had three kids later. And for them, they had never, I think my dad has a GED and my mom doesn't. And so they didn't really set themselves up in life um, well and felt like they were struggling you know, to survive day to day. And, you know, we grew up in poor neighborhoods. So we had a lot of diverse culture around us all the time. Um, but it was just like, there was not good examples for these are the things that you could do, or like, this is what happens if you go to college, or, you know, this is why you should get good grades, or even just conversation between my parents, because they were young and trying to figure things out at the same time that I was young trying to figure things out. My parents both came from Connecticut and moved down to Florida because it's cheaper in Florida compared to Connecticut and, you know, started their family and never traveled, didn't have money to. Um, and so the experience of seeing that and the juxtaposition of like, I want to travel because they never got to. What is that like? And the idea that like your life starts you know, at this very young age and you're told that, you know, you got to get a house and kids and a family and all this, well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because my sister is living that life and I think that's great for her. That fulfills her. Do, do most of your siblings kind of live that life or not to cut you off, but um, okay. are, no. are, I mean, do, are any of them like you or do you see yourself in any of them or that kind of mentality? Um, so after I was like backpacking in Europe for a while, my brother was inspired by that and decided, well, if, she could do that, then I could do that. Which, and I, which I think is a powerful is a powerful thing that a lot of people maybe underestimate. Well, I mean, I did make it a little bit easier for him and I've done it for my best friends as well. If they want to travel somewhere with all the experience that I've done it, just, just living on a shoestring budget, like you, I go, you hey. Know, you're the person to go to. <laughs> yeah, I'm ultimately like, I want to create a book about how to live in your car and make it efficient so that you have the mental space to not be exhausted from surviving every day, but you can also thrive. Like how to live on a shoestring budget and not feel oppressed all the time because of it. I mentioned it before. We kind of went down, you know, another path, which is, which is great. I, 
Um, but I brought up nudity. So mm -hmm. uh, at what point did then nudity become part of your, like a, a focal point of your modeling? You mentioned freelance work, which is what I assume kind of brought you into the sort of world that you've kind of been in now for the past eight years. Yeah. So an example of what happened is um, I'd fallen out of the modeling world for a little bit. And then I turned 21 and I'd met a local photographer who introduced me to his best friend, who's also a photographer. And his best friend's name is Swinsky, who became my mentor. Um, and it wasn't like I met Swinsky and said, hi, you're now my new mentor. We just developed this friendship where his experiences benefited me and talked to me about, you know, what photography looks like, who's his heroes, who he's inspired by. And just do casual conversation. And he's also the person who brought up um, pubic hair and nudity and what it means and what it looks like. And so I was open to this conversation about, you know, what does pubic hair look like on a woman and why do people shave and like that whole discussion and debate as well. Um, I don't think I would have had pubic hair had we not had that discussion. So I don't know where I would be then. <laughs> Yeah. Um, he had showed me this like European um, fashion magazine um, that can I can had... I just say it's so bizarre that that is something that like the discussion of pubic hair. It's kind of almost just bizarre to me how why that even is something that's so fixated on it, like how that almost has become like a, a, a statement. Like having oh, pubic hair have or not pubic. have. Yeah. You know, yeah. just like it's just I just think that that's a it's so weird to me anyway, that that's something that, you know, people put. I, I think know. the weirdest aspect of it, it, like to me, when I first I started appearing on Tumblr and the feedback that I was getting was, Oh, you have a bush. That's nasty. And then looking through those compliment, or those compliments, sorry, those, those comments yeah. was usually women. And I was like, Oh, wow. And I understand now why, but at the time I felt really betrayed because I was like, as a woman, I stopped shaving because it was painful. Um, I have very dark hair. Uh, I have a lot of dark hair actually. And, you know, to shave the entire area, it just felt painful and tedious because my hair grows really fast. So I would have to shave nearly every day. And it just felt like so much work for what? And then um, when I appeared on the internet, you know, with pubic hair and people were giving me feedback that wasn't accepting of it, and it largely appeared to be women, it's a manifestation of, of like what society has input into their brain about we're supposed to be hairless and we're supposed to look like this and you have that. How dare you? Why, why are you standing outside of the line? How can you have permission to do that? What's wrong with you? You know, I get that now, but I felt at the time it was a betrayal because I was like, don't you know what it's like to shave? Don't you know that it's painful? If it's painful for you, why would I want to go through that? But I didn't see that that way at the time. I, I just find it so bizarre. Maybe part of it, you know, I was kind of raised in a somewhat different environment than than a lot of people. And so these kind of things that are considered just sort of social standards, honestly, mm -hmm. sometimes almost kind of hurt my brain. And, and that kind of is one of them <laughs> that, you know, it's that I just almost yeah. can't really wrap my head around completely. Like I get why it is, but that it is that way. And so important for some people is just, it kind of is maddening. It's kind of almost like thinking of the concept of infinity at a certain point, you just, you're, you're going to hurt yourself. 
if you really, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, so, but that was a little tangent, but, um, oh, yeah. so, so uh, go ahead. Let me see if I can wrap up like how I got into nudity. Uh, or maybe even just what, what did it, what is the importance of it to you? Well, like why, why, why nudity? Why was that something that you're compelled to? Did it have something to do with like the rebellious nature and that it's like, well, you're not supposed to do this quote unquote. So I'm going to do this. And you know, like you said, you were. Yeah. It could partially be that I'm a nonconformist and immediately like if I'm told not to do something, I'm kind of like, Oh, but now I want to. And like, I have to wrestle with my brain about, do I really want to, or do I want to? Cause I was told I wasn't allowed to, but what, I mean, what happens, you know, I met Swinsky and he had, he had exposed me to like Helmut Newton and Ellen von Werth and these European photographers that their view of nudity was completely different than Americans' view of nudity. And when I saw a magazine that had highlighted some editorials, fashion editorials, and in the modeling industry that I'd come from, fashion editorials that I had never seen before, not because they were just newly made, but because they were European. And the difference between European and American is that these editorials had women in like a skirt with heels, you know, the whole nine yards and the shirt would be sheer or see-through. Um, the women would have like a long shirt on and absolutely no bottoms. There were, there were various fashion nudity images where the lines were blurred and the women weren't being punished as a result of being published in such a, a nude way. And when I saw that, it was almost like my brain went, wait, we can be nude and be respected at the same time? Question mark, miniature explosion. And I was yeah. like, oh like, my gosh. It was almost a like thing? a tectonic shift at kind of at that yeah. moment when you saw that was, because, you know, one of the things, and I, I know I've, I've, I've kind of posed this question to you, you know, I sent you the, the email, but, you know, it was, at what point was your perception of nudity formed and did it, evolve or did it change dramatically and it sounds like kind of at that moment it sort of just everything shifted is that is that accurate or is um, it, did it did a little it, bit okay like at that moment i clearly remember seeing those images seeing the women not only look beautiful the images look stunning the outfits just wow that's a thing you can really do that and and coordinating it with the concept that you can be nude and also respected because in America, if a woman's nude, it goes hand in hand with her loose moral codes. For me, I find really hard to, you know, introduce myself to someone and then they ask me what I do. And I say, I'm a freelance model and I, I leave it vague. Not that I don't do a variety of projects that involve clothing, which I do, but I largely use my body in the same way that a painter would use a, a tool like a paintbrush i use my body as a as a tool because i know it very well i know the shapes that it can create to convey something that i want to say so whether it has clothes on or it doesn't have clothes on in fact most times it's easier to work with no clothes um, than it would be to work with clothes like because the clothes you're highlighting what the person who created the clothes wants to say and you're just a mannequin that makes shapes that fits that aesthetic. Whereas when I'm using my body as a raw tool, it's all about my body and how I want to create the shapes that have the person who's viewing it perceive what's going on. 
for me, when I was a kid, I, you know, I've always been that rebellious, you know, just not wanting to fit inside this little box that people want to put me in. And I would run around in high school. One of my nicknames was Mooning Chew. I was the only Jewish kid in a really tiny um, school where everyone that I went to elementary, grade school, um, and then middle school and also high school, I knew everyone by first and last name. The graduating class knew everyone by first and last name. Like we're such a small community. And, you know, I was a Jewish kid and people thought that that was a weird thing. Like I was outside of the norm of what they knew. And so they called me mooning Jew as a, a play on words, mooning you. And I would, I was known largely for just going around mooning people. I thought it was funny. It was just for kicks to me, but again, it's outside of like a norm of society. So I had no problem with you know, nudity, but I didn't really understand it or even the implications of it or, you know, in the grander scheme of like how we as a society view nudity and why it was so odd that me, a woman was doing that versus like men could do that and they get laughs. I mean, I was doing it. I was getting laughs too, but sometimes it would also get like, well, why are Raise you Raise eyebrows. That? Yeah. 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 It's for, for, for men, a lot of times nudity is, is, is just kind of funny. Well, like, I also think about the double, the double standard of like uh, women doing fart jokes or women doing poop jokes. You know, those aren't really spaces that women are, women are allowed to explore. So, of course, they'll get a raised eyebrow there. I think it was kind of the same line that I was teetering over, like, oh, we would allow men to do this because that's kind of crude humor. But women, uh... So one of the things that, it, you know, you're kind of talking about that, kind of telling that story is, you know, the way that we learn about sexuality is we obviously play with it. And sexuality is is a very, very vast concept that I think most Americans don't, they, they equate sexuality with sex. And mm-hmm. so to me, you know, I see it as you're very much kind of exploring this sort of other world of sexuality, which is huge and largely untapped, especially by, I think, Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not that it necessarily has to be a totally like conscious thing, but I mean, do you do you find that maybe to be accurate? Because, like, for example, when I went to Europe, you know, it was after I graduated high school and stuff like that. I just remember that that distinct difference in that cultural perception. Because I, I was, for example, I remember we flew into Rome, and you know, you're going through the streets of Rome, and there's nudity on billboards. Yeah. And, and this is 2001, um, so you know, it was like some time ago. But I just remember being like, "What?" You know, like like. <laughs> It, yeah. and, and it wasn't like it, it wasn't like a like googly eyes like oh yeah this is amazing it was just that it was just like wait a minute what and and a, a big part of that came from my background I grew up in a very Catholic family I'm one of 10 kids and you know I, I identified as being Catholic and here I was uh in Rome which is you know the, where the Vatican is the and Vatican. stuff like that yeah and so it's like I, there, the clarity, and I always kind of knew this, but it was just this obvious, glaring clarity of the way that you see the world. It's not because of your religion; it's because of your culture. Yes. And oh, sure. Yeah, and and that was something that really, really struck struck me, and has all. It's always stayed with me. It was kind of one of those kind of reference points for for myself, and it's well. A, that perfect. moment that you saw. Like, let's say you saw a poster and it was an advert and it had nudity on it. It was a huge billboard. It, yeah. Like the feelings 
that you may have felt may have felt something like, whoa, what is this? I'm wrong. Who's looking at this? Why are we looking at this? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And it was, it's suddenly like, like there's something wrong here. And it's because of the nudity that we cultured as Americans automatically feel that it's wrong as a base and have a hard time making the leap over that feeling and dissecting the rest of, well, why did they use nudity in this advert? What is this advert trying to say? What color schemes did they use? Does that play into the advert? Does it take away from the advert? Like you can't even get over that first hurdle because there's this blashing like light in your head saying nudity wrong, nudity wrong, nudity wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Don't look, advert your eyes, especially if you're raised in a um, religious household. So a little bit of my background is, you know, my parents were in and out of, my mother's a Christian, my father's Jewish. And so we went to Tabernacle, we went to uh, Christian churches, and I think ultimately my dad has decided to be a Messianic Jew, and my mother, they're divorced now, is a Christian. And so I visit both my family members, and they're both heavily religious, and we have a lot of conversations around what am I doing, what am I doing in the world, my identity as a queer woman, my identity as a nude heart model. And, you know, while my mom approaches it more from the manner of like Jesus walked among um, the people that he was trying to preach to were also the people that would quote unquote be condemned by Christian society, you know, prostitutes, people that were stealing robbers, the poor lepers, people that were ill, like Jesus would go to those people and just be an example to them. And so my mom treats me in that same manner. She's like, I love you. You're my daughter. I accept you. While we don't necessarily agree or see eye to eye on all points and views in life, I will accept you and love you and be the example. My dad reigns a little bit harder on things, especially when it comes to being queer, because in his mind, all he can think about is my daughter's going to hell because she's making a choice. And yeah, that I has, respect that has him yeah. and his religion, but it's not accurate. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would a queer person choose to make their life harder? Um, let me just check mark this box right here where it says that my entire life is going to be an uphill battle and I'll constantly have to explain my choice. That's not really a choice. Okay. Yep. That's, I'm going to choose that one. It sounds good. Is your queer identity then, it, I mean, do you, is that something that you think about like as a model and is it something that's important to you or is it more so something that is uh, not directly relevant? to kind of your art modeling and stuff like that? Well, I think that it plays a subconscious role in the sense that I have always not been comfortable just being, you know, like just shut up and be pretty. So that would be a more masculine trait, like constantly fighting for space, constantly not being accommodating in ways that would say, oh, this is all about you and your idea and your opinion. Let me just take a step back and make myself smaller and smaller and smaller and accommodate and accommodate. And my androgynous look, which is a large part of my queer identity and as, as well as like who I feel I am as a person. Um, would, would you be, uh, not to interrupt you, but would you be able to okay. uh, define what that androgyny means to you? People know kind of what that is, but you know, if I, I mean, I, would, I know I personally would love to hear what that means to you kind of more because it's something that I know on your Instagram you state androgynous and there's obviously an identity there that you yeah. you know if you could talk a little bit more about that I, I mean I'd appreciate it Say for, for me the definition is a vessel 
so a human, that contains both masculine and feminine qualities that at the same time, they're like paradoxical and symbiotic. So I have a strong jawline. I tend to have men's haircuts, but my body in the shape that it presents itself is very feminine. And with that being said, you know, my body shape looks very feminine in this um, typical standard of what society is constructed as a feminine look, which is like an hourglass figure. Sure, that is traditionally female. But the way that I present myself and pose myself doesn't necessarily amplify those more womanly traits as much as the more masculine traits. So they live together symbiotically in the same vessel and don't contradict each other. That's the biggest part of it. It's more of being symbiotic together. For example, you know, having that 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 hourglass figure, a traditional woman pose would be to make an S-curve. You see a lot of paintings or photographs, you know, even hundreds of years ago, um, that highlight an S-curve for a woman. Yeah, the kind of smaller waist and the hips. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and just the way that they're standing, that, that makes the shape of an S, you know, your shoulders tilted one way, your, your body, um, your torso is kind of like curved to another direction with your hip. And then your feet are usually together, you know, one leg crossed in front of the other. Um, for me, I stand more broadly. I take up more space and I'm usually more direct. And I stare into the camera in a way that Helmut Newton's women often stared into the camera, which was like, I'm here for me. I'm not here for you. This is not a come hither look. I'm here. I'm clear. I'm aware. I'm paying attention. And, you know, I am in control of the situation here. And if you like what you see, great. Good for you. Not about you. About me and my presence. Yeah, Hel- Helmut Newton's his models never came across as some uh, someone that was weak. And there's nothing wrong with, I think the difference, like use Ellen Von Unworth and then Helmut Newton because they're very well-known photographers. In Ellen Von Unworth's images, whether or not the, the model is nude, there's always this sexual connotation. It's kind of like the, the difference between the fuck you fashion look and the fuck me glamour look. Where glamour is, is pandering to the audience or the viewer of the image. And it's like, I'm an object, make me your object, look at me in this manner, you know, by the choices of the clothing, the choices of the pose, the choice of the way that they're they're looking at the viewer versus the more fuck you look, which is I'm in control of this situation. I'm not here to be your object or play toy. I'm here and aware. And sure, we can both come together and have fun, but I have equal footing in what's going on. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, that, that, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. So what what do you feel then your modeling contributes? Uh, or, or have you ever thought of it in that way? Do you feel like you're contributing to something bigger? Or do you feel like it's just really sort of more of a personal experience? You know, I've been spending a lot of time after working at the art space in Durham um, thinking about how small and irrelevant the the modeling that 
I was contributing to is in a larger context of the art that needs to or should provide space for in the world. And like part of the conundrum that I'm facing right now is am I taking up space that someone else deserves because I am the cookie cutter look of what we keep getting fed by society we need to look like. And that contributes like me putting myself out there in this public way contributes to others feeling bad about their bodies or how they look or how they were born and you know kind of in this like realm of you know what I don't know if I I really think that what I need to say is is so much more important than how I'm making other people feel because of how I look so with that being said (laughs) um I'm more of an art facilitator. I fulfilled a need where I discovered art and what it meant to to command space and be able to have space and feel empowered because of it. I've had a lot of conversations with people and may have changed people's perspectives. Just being me, an authentic version of myself and putting it out there on social media for people to see, you know, has inspired people in ways that I didn't know I was doing. And that's awesome. And that's beautiful. But I don't think that that's enough, which is why I'm changing directions. It's then it seems like maybe though this process of being an art model and utilizing nudity, is that, is that something that you are, I guess, are, are, are proud of then at this point? Like do you, is what is, I guess, what is, has it done for you, you positively, like on a personal level? Is it, I guess maybe the question is, and the way that I'm thinking about, and I don't want to, you know, kind of okay. push you in this direction, but to me, nudity and sexuality, it's a, it can very, very much, I very much equate it with a sort of sense of self-liberation. Yeah. And, and do you think that maybe you experiencing, experiencing sort of this world and being able to kind of push past these boundaries and kind of, like you said, this sort of fuck you I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to go in my direction. The energy that kind of carries over and you said kind of people responding and stuff like that. I don't know what, what are, does that make sense at all? Yeah. Like the first thing that came to mind in response to your question was um, I'd read this book by Asia Kara. Um, She's a porn star. And like I said, there's absolutely no problem with pornography. There are two consenting adults that are coming together and making something beautiful for others to enjoy. It's not like we don't have sex. There is a thing, you know, asexual people, they're valid, their experiences are valid. But for the large majority of either Americans or worldwide, that's how children are created. We all have sex. So I have nothing wrong with pornography. And I don't think that there's some sort of hierarchy like nudity in this direction is okay, but nudity in that direction is not okay. I think that's silly. Um, So with that being said, I read this book and she, in her experience, was describing the beautiful part about being and porn for her was uh, she's a highly sexual individual and so going into porn felt like a safe area for her to just try all of these different things that she may be too embarrassed to ask her partner on a one-on-one but she felt safe you know bringing it up and and going hey I want to try this thing or you know you would be an expert in that thing and I kind of want to try that how do you feel about it plus they all get tested and They all have these laws and regulations around, you know, how these things are structured. So it felt safe for her to go and try all of these taboo things. Right. Well, for me, 
modeling has been a way to find a voice because in society, me being a very tall and pretty female form, I've been taught that if I go outside wearing anything other than what I call my uniform of black pants and a black shirt that minimizes me, doesn't draw attention to me, then I'm in some way asking for people to come up to me and start talking to me and have a conversation with me when I really just want to go from my house to the grocery store. And I can't do that because I've chosen to wear clothes that draws attention to me and invites people to come have conversations with me. There's nothing wrong with people being friendly, but there is something wrong in our society where a woman can't put in a set of earbuds, sit down on a bus and just zone off like they don't have permission for that because someone will come up and try to have a conversation with them, even though all of the signs there say this person's not interested in having a conversation right now. Yeah. I'm in Um, my world. Don't bother me. Yeah. Like I very clearly have been reading a book on a bus, you know, very engrossed in my book and someone would come up and just start a conversation with me. And I'm rude if I try to exit that conversation or I'm very clearly reading my book and put it closer to my face, you know, so there's consequences to these social behaviors so in society as a large, I've been taught that I can't express myself through clothes. I took on modeling and, and the approach that I have to modeling is as a character. I get to explore this small part of myself that I don't feel safe exploring in a larger part in society because of the way that others treat me. So I had this um, a, a better, clearer example. For a minute, I was really obsessing about this dandy boy look. Um, I discovered the shop in Berlin, and it was about this very effeminate um, appearing man wearing floral prints or, or, you know, softer pastel colors, um, you know, painted nails, maybe a little bit of lipstick. Um, And there's even a glam rock version of it for men. I mean, think about some of the bands that we saw in the 80s and the 70s. Yeah. And so, you know, this very effeminate looking, obviously, man um, person wearing all of these like very feminine looking things. And, and that's what I was drawn to in this, this dandy personality. And so I did a shoot where I made myself appear more masculine, but with the way that I carried myself, the way that I posed myself, and then put on these feminine looking men's clothes. And I got to explore that character in an area where there was no immediate feedback from outside of people that were on the same page as me creatively creating this project together. So I've created the safe spaces for me to explore parts of myself that society would not allow or accept. How important do you feel that is for others to kind of do the same thing, kind of explore these possibilities? Because I think like we're talking about society really tries to restrict who we are to kind of, to fit what it finds valuable. Mm-hmm. And so venturing outside of that is, it's always trying to kind of push you back and kind of herd you back in. How, yeah. how important do you think, or what, what maybe even advice would you give to others who are trying to kind of explore that realm? Like you said, modeling gives you the ability to ex- kind of explore these other other aspects of sexuality and nudity and stuff like that. What would you recommend people kind of do that same thing? Or, you know, obviously there's a, there needs to be a safe space. It kind of, it's not kind of like a, just go and find someone and do something like that. But I mean, do you recommend that kind of world to people or? Oh, for sure. Like 
it's it's really accessible to buy a cheap digital camera or even like a disposable film camera um, and, you know, set up self-portraits where you're discovering, you know, trying on a character that's just a small fraction of who you are as an individual and it's amplified. Take drag queens or drag kings, for example. Those are amplified characters. So maybe they had this one idea of a, of a woman and then they take that and, and really, truly draw it out and go all the way down the rabbit hole. What does it look like? Why, why does it look like that? And explore that. And you can do that in your own home, you know, with a camera if you want to see what it looks like in real time. Or you can just do it in front of a mirror. You know, just being able to create a safe space where it's, it's you with a trusted friend or you by yourself. You know, if, if the level of sensitivity is that you can't, you don't want to be around anyone that could give you any feedback at all because it's very sensitive to you, that's also fine. You know, you're, you're able to find those pockets. Can you see your progress over the years? When you look back on, on photos and stuff like that, can, can you see your even like mental or psychological progress in that respect? Um, thankfully, with all of the traveling I've done, I've kept scrapbooks. So not only do I have like, you know, January 19th, 2008, this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking about, you know, written down, but I also have self portraits that I've taken as an idea of like, Oh, I want to invest more time and effort into this idea or screen caps of things that I found on the internet that I was like, I like this element for that. Maybe that could play on this idea. And then looking through my portfolio, of course, like at the very beginning of whenever you start something, the ground isn't set underneath you. It's kind of shaky. You're figuring it out. So the quality of, of work that I've created from the beginning to the end is also very drastic. And with the traveling thing, usually every six months, I go through a period of time where I've planned out all of this travel, planned out all of these projects. And then at the end of that six months, I review the images that I've gotten back, the experiences I've had, what I feel I've played a lot of, so if I did in six months so much beauty work where I became so many different concepts, the next six months will look totally different because I don't want to tackle the same ground I've already tackled. I want to experience new things. I want to meet new things. Traveling is very, it's that kind of mind expansive, you know, it, it just really kind of stretches your brain in this way that it's slightly uncomfortable, but at the same time, you just kind of want to keep doing it. Is is how how important has that experience then become to you? I exist better. Maybe it was because I was cultured as a female to be accommodating of others. And that's one of the things that you have to do when you're traveling is like so many things are out of your control, you know, train schedules, bus schedules, et cetera. All of that things are out of your control. And I thrived so much better day to day moving around being creative doing all these things than when i'm stationary because i feel like there's a lot more things that take more time and then you have to work around other people's schedules as well which also takes time and it feels like you're not getting anything done with with travel it's really really important to go outside of the culture that you're in i.e., america for example where we have very puritanical views of nudity and Let's see, oh, well, in South Africa, this is what they think of nudity. It's not really a big deal because there are other things that are much bigger deals to them currently, like apartheid happening 20 years ago and, and seeing the real devastation and segregation 
in that area and then being able to look back at what's happened in America a hundred years ago, we got rid of abolished slavery, but did we really? Because there's still large parts of America that are segregated and, and seeing that, that difference of what it looks like in segregation there in South Africa compared to what it looks like here in America gave me another perspective. I'm not been able to see or access the whole picture until I left and had something to compare it to. Do you, is there a, a culture that you feel most, I guess, at peace in, so to say? Mm, I mean, people have asked me, like, if I was ever going to find a home base after all the traveling and being around everywhere. And my response, I guess, would be the same. Just kind of, if I had found it, I guess I would have settled. And I'm not technically settled now either because I have a contract and when it ends, I you know decide what I want to go do next, which I already, <laughs> I've already decided what I want to do. Um, so yes and no. The only time I've ever felt at home, quote unquote, is driving around out in the desert in parts of California um, that, are, that are true desert, desert, like slab city. You're fighting against such harsh elements that you're like, do I expend energy at just conforming and trying to fit in and reading this like society's viewpoint of what I need to look like? Or do I just say whatever and invest the little bit of effort and energy that I have left over to just get through the day? And what comes out of that second part is this one person had a hundred bowling balls in their front yard and they had googly eyes on them. And it was just so odd to me and so funny. It tickled my t- like t- um, funny bone just seeing that, you know, that could exist there, but it wouldn't be able to exist somewhere in suburbia where you're taught that you have to conform and fit in. So what I had found that made me feel like home is a large group of people that weren't cultured to fit in. Because in the grand scheme of things for them, the the harshness of the conditions that they lived in ate up so much of that oh, I need to fit in and spend all of my effort and energy on that and then additionally try to survive day to day because there's no water out here and the sun's harsh. You know, like which one do I give more effort and energy into? Surviving seemed to like reign over. And that's why I felt drawn out there. Do I actually want to live out there? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, like you want that element of just that that culture and just kind of pe- being able to sort of exist in the way that you feel compelled. But mm-hmm. with the ex- kind of accessibility and the, the convenience of, and of, you know, being in city and around people, basically. Uh, I see. I don't even know. I'm kind of up in the air about do I want to live in a city? Depends on your mood. <laughs> yeah. yeah t- 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 tomorrow it might change. Today it's, no. I've never found a place uh, that I feel like I could do that. I feel like part of me is I'm trying to find a place where I really actually kind of feel like I, I, not that I fit in, but that I can be kind of comfortable being myself. And I don't, I'm not really sure if I've ever found that. Well, Well, that you're more celebrated for the differences and diverse things that, that make up who you are as an individual versus the things that make you like being punished for those things. Yeah. Yeah. And an example is, you know, very, very much like, you know, I do, nude photography and I think that's a very clear example but there's a lot of other things but it's like that doesn't really have a place in really any 
in the world that I've I, I've been in. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like this thing that I do, and I'm not even really sure how to integrate that into my life, but it's such a huge identity, but I don't really know where it fits in other than just kind of online, which is, which to me is even a, a bit frustrating to be, to be completely honest. You know, this sort of world just sort of exists online. People have this perception, and I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to find a way to sort of meld everything and live in a way that is more cohesive. And I don't know, I've never really quite found that. I may, you know, may, I don't know if you can relate to that in any way, but to me, that's very much kind of how it I feels. Mean, I do really love um, this building that I'm working at right now because it's, I mean, here's a great example. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we have a Patreon day that encapsules, you know, this is a modelographer who both shoots and models. And this is another creator who shoots and models and they can buy a ticket to this event and arrange between themselves. I shoot you for, for my own Patreon and you shoot me for my own Patreon. And it's a symbiotic relationship where they're both getting benefits. They're both getting new perspectives on the kind of art that they're creating because these two individuals have different artistic visions. Um, and everyone's working together in a bigger collaboration. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to do is like a bunch of people come together, create something that's larger than themselves, and then walk away with that experience and go, was this beneficial? Was it not? Is it something I could see myself doing again in the future? So this building um, is 22,000 square feet, but a lot of it's divided in different work spaces. And so an artist will be installing their uh, stage, background setup, whatever installation for performance that they're going to give on the weekend. And I had made it very clear to all of the artists that were going to work in the building on that particular day. Hey, there's a Patreon date. This is what it is. The grand explanation that I gave you. And then that also means that people will be walking around nude. And if you are uncomfortable with that, you have been warned. Yeah. But that is the president. Like people will be walking around nude and they feel comfortable and they're fine. If you feel a type of way, that's your problem, not ours. Not saying that we weren't being considerate of their feelings, but that's what the day was about. That's what the day is intended for, whether it was like nude art or even like fashion art or whatever. Just know that there will be some nudity involved. And as an adult, if you can't handle that, you know, just like, walk by because it's not something that you want to see and you're going to raise a fuss, then you're the problem, not the people who are creating things with, you know, the tools that they have. So everyone that was at the building had no problem with it. There was not an issue, but having those conversations, starting those conversations, redirecting the narrative of like, Oh, well, you're naked. You're the problem. No, actually not. This is an art space. And that's what it's here for is to be a resource to artists, to create. Yeah, I, I, no, I think even that that's a big part of why I'm, you know, starting this podcast is try to try and restructure a narrative and create a space where people can explore these concepts and what they mean, and really get a bigger picture behind what what the motivations as to why people take part in it because it's very easy to for people to look at it who don't understand it and make up their own sort of story about it, and mm-hmm. you know, like you mentioned a while ago about 
pornography and how we see we'll see nudity and automatically just kind of deem it as something pornographic when the reality is that it's something a lot more complex the reasons why people are doing it are complex there's a, a the motivations behind it are you know they can kind of go on for a long time and i think that's one of yeah. the, the problems is that we oversimplify what a person is and their reasons behind it and yeah we don't we don't give it that space to allow it to be explored so i think it, a lot of time it's it's that lack of communication or that that lack of dialogue and mm -hmm. under and to to even understand these things that are are ultimately incredibly complex i mean in reality like human nature we do try to label things and labeling is going black or white it's this or it's that and sometimes it's great for understanding for example oh, yeah. if someone meets me and in their brain they go you're a woman and they use that to understand what my perspective may be in the world but also understand that experiences human beings are layered and don't just define me by that one trait because as i said before i identify as androgynous which means that like andro um gender is not defined by your body parts example just because i have boobs does not mean that i'm a woman um for me androgyny is comfortably being kind of in the middle which i think is also non-binary i'm not sure so that's why i don't use that word i'm still exploring like pronouns and identity and i'm pretty open to they their pronouns but also really largely connected to she and trying to figure out if Am I connected so much to she pronouns because I've been cultured in this way for so long that it feels like a chore to change it now? Yeah. Or is it because I'm just truly like, eh, whatever, I'm a she, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it, and this is just kind of how I grew up. And I, you know, when you, when you grow up thinking a certain way, you think that a lot of other people see it that way as well. But the way that I've always kind of seen it is like, we obviously encapsulate so much more than just this little concept. To me, that's almost a, a given. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like even though I identify as a man, at the same time, I can easily say there's absolutely feminine traits that I I identify with. You know what I mean? And, well, and the photo series that we created together, where you were wearing makeup and I was the more masculine, like stood up taller, carried myself bigger, took up more space was more dominating with my body posture and you were a little bit more feminine kind of curled up into yourself um had makeup on you know it like you can have body parts that don't align with what we stereotypically say as a man versus a woman but i don't think that largely gender is black or white there's also space in the middle for you know variations of combinations of this and that or also this and this and this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I, I grew up uh, Catholic in a very Catholic family. Um, and to me, the way I guess I, I saw it, referring back to that, I, I'm agnostic now, you know, I'm not religious or anything, but the way that I always saw it and the way that I think it was that, and the way my parents even taught me is that, well, if God exists, God, God encapsulates both masculinity and femininity. He he mm -hmm. exists beyond and outside of a gender. You know, even though, you know, people generally refer to God as a him, the the belief I can say within Catholicism, and I obviously can't speak necessarily for other religions, but you know, 
having studied it and stuff like that, even in college, that is the belief is that God doesn't have a gender. And so mm-hmm. going from that kind of theological background, you know, like I said, if he, God does exist, then, and he created us, or then we would, we would kind of have natures that are not just simply being a man. It's not that you have just masculine nature or a woman has just a feminine nature, but that there's a beauty in being able to have elements of both. And so I never saw them as being sort of ex, like it wasn't to the exclusion of something else, if that makes any uh, sense. You yeah. I mean? Like if you're only in this, like if you're labeled a man, then you can only exist in this small box, these things, these traits, this way of being versus um, you know, oh, well, I don't do this, but I adhere to that. Like, there's a little bit of overlap. It, I mean, it's kind of weird because I feel like there's this paradox of with Christianity, for example, they say the men's the head of the household and that um, woman was designed after, you know, out of the, the rib of Adam. And so they create this hierarchy that men can be in positions of power in their church, like they can be pastors, they can be deacons, et cetera, but women can't be because women is secondary. We were created out of man. Um, which in what you're saying, you know, God's this non-gendered entity that is everything and nothing at the same time. And if individual humans are created out of that concept, then we're mirrors of that. So we're everything and nothing at the same time. Gender would be irrelevant and their hierarchy of like man over woman is also irrelevant. Yeah, there's just or, a lot of things with religion that don't make any sense. Yeah, well, well, I think one of the things about religion. So when I when I went to I went to college and I I went to a real small liberal arts school. It was Catholic, so I was a philosophy major, but um, I studied theology as well. And so when people say that, when they people talk about you know uh, the man is the head of the household, this kind of concept. If you actually really look at theology and and any professor and anyone who is well versed in in theology, what they understand is that there is another side to that sort of Bible quote, and that and that is, uh, you know, it's like the whole saying is like women women treat the man as the head of the house or or whatever. But then it also says men treat your wives as as Christ treats the church. So a lot of people don't understand that in that. In, in in Catholic theology, what that means is, well, Jesus died and he completely sacrificed himself and put himself at the feet of this concept of the church. So mm-hmm. even though it says men, you know, women be sort of a servant to men, it's it's then saying on the on the other end of that, which most people don't like to quote, <laughs> which I always <laughs> find funny, is that it's saying that what you need to do as a man is you need to completely sacrifice yourself. And that's that I, I it's it's interesting that people always want to leave that out. <laughs> well, yeah, because yeah. it doesn't feed back into the way that they use it later to feed into the thing that they want. Which, yeah, to gain power yeah. or you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and like I said I, I'm not I'm not religious anymore, but I always find that funny to he- see how many people will will use that like men will use that. Well, yeah, you need to obey me, but it's like, yeah, but let's read the other part of that. <laughs> yeah, but let's fully think this thought out. You know, I just it's it's the yin and the yang. It's like you can't have this without also that. And so part of the discussions I've been having with my dad is, 
you know, where men can legally walk around topless, I also feel that women can legally or should legally also be able to walk around topless. Why I think that's important is because, you know, I don't think that we would be so hung up on this idea of sexualizing a woman's body if we had to confront actually seeing like your moment where you saw nudity on an advertisement that was public made you feel a certain way well if men had to confront seeing women in the way that we see men and we don't sexualize men not even just that i identify as queer but like if i saw a topless man i would not even think anything of it it would never be oh, well, you know, isn't that a little risque? Or why are you showing your nipples out in public? You know, someone's going to get a little feisty in their downstairs. Like, well, well, that I think, never occurs to us. I, well, I think part of it, too, the sort of where my thought goes when, you know, when I hear that is, okay, so sexualizing toplessness to me is, well, that's, there's, that's fine. But the problem that I see is that the fact that people can't not sexualize it you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's that, that's fine if you want to, if you like breasts or if, even if like a woman likes a man's chest and they see that and that's something that's attractive or a turn on or something mm -hmm. like that. But the problem, the bigger problem that I see is just that, well, how can you, you don't seem to be able to not look at it that way. You know what I mean? So like I yeah. think of my wife like breastfeeding, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like women, especially in the United States, that's something that's taboo, which is insane. And but it's only taboo because we've never had to like. Uh, let me think about this for a second. Like, so if we back up, if you go to any diner in America and you order French toast, there's kind of a standard of a way that it's going to appear. It'll look like you know two pieces of bread generally that are cut in in a triangle shape. So not even half like when you would cut a sandwich in half. It's cut in a triangle shape. And it's usually got powdered spring, um, powdered sugar sprinkled on top and, and syrup, right? Yeah. So because you've, you've been around this over and over and over again, you know what you're going to get when you order French toast. Because men have not had to be held accountable for their behavior in sexualizing women's boobs, it's not my choice that I can't be topless. It's someone else's choice to sexualize my body, even though I'm not saying this is a sexual, you know, the like situation isn't, is, yeah. is not sexual by my choice. It's being projected onto me, but because men have not had to be confronted with, this is the protocol of how you should behave yourself. This is what you should be doing. And this is what you shouldn't be doing because we don't get to be topless. They are not being motivated to be changed. I've been to many new beaches where I've seen there are also, you know, some guys that go there with ulterior motives in mind. That being said, I've been to many new beaches where people come up to me and have totally different conversations with me, more friendly, more um, open conversations, because you literally have nothing to hide at that point. We're all the same. We're all there, completely nude, bearing all. We are literally all the same and i've had people come up to me and invite me to come and eat with them their picnics share a bottle of wine with them tell me their story tell me you know oh i love this country they're from somewhere else whatever those are not conversations that i generally have at beaches that you are wearing a swimsuit because of that additional layer it's kind of the difference between like glamour and nude art like photographs 
the way that you get treated in the glamour industry, which is very much about you're wearing clothes, but that's about you as a woman, as an object. And I face those same things on a beach where you're wearing clothes, but it's about you as a woman, as an object, rather than coming into it and seeing people like that guy's nude. I'm nude. We are both equal. Yeah, there's there's a if any I mean, I think the people who have experienced that that world realize like there is something very sobering, but at the same time, it's it's very liberating to be able to experience that. And I don't think that many people realize that psychological effect unless you've kind of gone through it. Well, I think the experience in a woman's body when you're nude and the man's also nude, that you are, it's a leveled playing field because they're just as vulnerable being nude as you are. Whereas when you're at the beach wearing clothes and a man can walk around topless and, and in shorts and a woman's traditional swimsuit is, you know, two piece or even a one piece where you're more covered, the woman is still pitted in a, in an objectified position. Like yeah. It's very reductionary. Men. Well, and that, that's, they're lesser men. yeah. Yeah. And those conversations, you know, it's still okay for a man to come over and objectify the woman and is even encouraged to because the playing field is not even again, like the man can wear less clothes than a woman could wear at the same space so there will always be that hierarchy of like what men's projecting men's desires men's ideas men's thoughts and concepts have more value in that space where we're not even versus on the beach where i've been treated as an equal yeah yeah i i think it's it's interesting too that sexuality that's not sex that the language doesn't even really exist to be able to almost talk about it. Almost, we, we can only really kind of point to it sort of with these examples and kind of go, yeah, you know, like, you know, like say, for example, shooting with somebody and, you know, you're nude and that there's, there, I would assume that you can say the majority of people, hopefully you can say the majority of people that you've worked with have been respectful of you and have, have you know, treated you uh, properly. And that that can exist, like this kind of world of sexuality can exist that doesn't mean sex, but the language mm-hmm. doesn't exist to be able to really express it or talk about it. Um, it's Yes, I have been treated wonderfully by certain individuals. And then there also been the flip side of that where perpetuating cultured situations have happened. And when I call it out, I'm the person that's in trouble. Kind of like like what I was saying earlier, where you know I announced vocally, communicated loudly, this is what Patreon Day is, this is what it's supposed to mean, this is what it's supposed to be. And if you feel some type of way about the nudity, that is your problem. That is not our problem. However, being a woman, the limitations that I kept finding over and over again is that, you know, I'm standing up asking for the same amount of space, not Like if you and I were shooting and I said, here's my idea, I'm not asking you to completely change the entire concept of the shoot. I'm saying in your brain, the amount of space that you have have set aside for your concept and idea, make an equal amount of space to consider the idea that I've brought to you. And then look at those two ideas, process, oh, is this idea good or is that idea good on an equal playing field and then make a decision. It's not that when women stand up and vocalize and say these things that we're going, wait, 
Your idea, garbage. Throw it out the window. Don't want to pay attention to it. Don't even want to get it a time of day. We're going to now center only my idea over your idea. That's not at all what we're asking, but that's kind of the response that you get over and over and over again. And that's why I said I found modeling limiting at times because in a society that perpetuates that idea that men has more value than women, when I come in and I go, yeah, I see that very clear pathway of conformity and I'm going to interject and say, I have this idea. I have been, you know, faced with backlash or, or pushback in areas even for just a simple suggestion. And what that looks like is, hey Grant, I'd like to shoot next to this window. There's very beautiful natural light coming in and it's a very simple setup and I, I would like to shoot over here by this window. So I've clearly communicated to you the full scope of my idea. I can even give you like the cropping or the framing if you'd like, but I generally start with very soft suggestions to see what the person's going to react like. And so I'll say, hey, I'll just stand over here next to the window, what do you think? And a good sign would be, oh, Roy, that's a that's an interesting idea. Yeah, let's try that. What do you think the framing's like? Or, you know, how much were you envisioning of you in the image? Or or do you want me to, you know, go back a little bit and get more of the wall and setting in it? Or did you want me to come in and do a portrait? That's providing space for someone's input versus what I often hear, which is like, oh, well, I don't like that window, it's casting a weird shadow or any number of justifications for why that idea is not good. Yeah, Ho hopefully I've never been, because we've worked no. together twice, hopefully. <laughs> no, you actually, hopefully. it's really brilliant because you, you provide this idea, for example, the idea that we talked about earlier with the makeup, you know, you wanted to play with, you know, gender roles and sexual identity, and you clearly communicated what your idea was and what, what you wanted to get across, and then also invited me to say, hey, um, I don't know if you ever thought about this aspect, but it might look like that. So what if we take what your idea is and use this other perspective to, to kind of clearly communicate what you're trying to talk about? Yeah, especially, I mean, with shooting digital, especially, it, it, there's almost no reason to try it, not try, you know, try something because it's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's easier and it's not like it's going to cost you money per shot to try something. Exactly. Exactly. The only thing that costs you in that context is time. And sometimes time you don't get back. Yeah. But also too, there, you create a, a better, a better connection and you also yeah. have the also too, like, Oh, I never saw that. That's really interesting. You know, you have, well, here's a good project that kind of like highlights that whole idea. There's a photographer that I worked with in DC and, um, I loved our dynamic because he is, he's a he, uh, born uh, in America, black man, has a lovely, beautiful wife. Um, they're an, a very intelligent um, couple, and I really adored talking to them. He had pitched me an idea. Um, he wanted to do something with me because I'm androgynous um, in a men's bathroom, standing at the urinal, flicking the camera off. I think I've and, seen I've seen this photo. Yeah, <laughs> and and the, good the, one. The, thank you. The conversation that we had around it was like, I understand your project. Can you tell me more about why you want to do this? Because if there's a reason, like all the way at the bottom of what we're we're trying to accomplish, that is the most important thing. So we can walk it out in several directions and and think about how it's going to be received or interpreted so that 
the message that you're trying to get across will go to more people easily understood rather than miss its mark entirely or only to a smaller percentage of people who are going to get it. So when we talked the whole concept out, the message that was important was it doesn't fucking matter what your gender is. Like Bathroom issues are so silly because we all do the same three things. We poop, we pee, we have sex. Those three things unite us commonly across the board. Most individuals do at least two of those things. If you're asexual, you don't. Um, I really don't want to dismiss um, their identity. And I, because it's not my experience, I have forgotten about it and I apologize. Um, but those, those things connect us as individuals. And in, in North Carolina, especially where we have the Bathroom Act, um, you are required by law to go to the bathroom of your born identity. So if I was uh, born a woman and was transitioning into being a man, I still have to use the woman's restroom. And you know, I just don't understand gender politics at all when it comes to things like that. Yeah, I don't understand it either, to be totally honest. They're just individual stalls. So what's the difference between a man and a woman sharing a bathroom, you know, if you're in your individual stall anyway? Yeah. And I don't get it. So that's what we were trying to convey with the, the project. What he had pitched to me was, you know, wear a dress and stand in front of the urinal, maybe with your leg up from behind and like flick off the camera. and from my experience in the queer community, what I didn't want to convey, because from behind with my short hair, tall stature, my body posture, I may look like a trans person. And so the message that he was trying to convey would be lost. So what we came up with after talking out so many different angles and perspectives was to put the same person in the image in what society's constructed as gender roles, so a masculine and a feminine, so I'm literally two people in that image, where one, I'm using it as the urinal as a man would, you know, from behind, I have this man's coat on, I have man's trousers on, I have my Doc Martens, and I'm standing there with roughly my hand in about the place that you would be holding your genitalia to use the toilet. And then I do the same thing as a woman, but I'm, I'm kind of squatting dainty-like and flicking off the camera as well, you know, and it's very clear that I'm a, a female from the front where I'm wearing a dress. You can see my face and my more feminine features. But the connecting feature of that so that you understood that I was both people and that gender doesn't really matter in the scenario. I'm doing the same thing. I wore my docs to connect the both fe feminine person persona and the masculine persona. It encompassed both or all. all. Yeah. 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 And to just kind of say, like, as an overview, if this is how you're separating society, men versus women, we both do the same thing. So what difference does it make? Yeah, it really, doesn't. where where should the line be drawn? Kind of asking that question. Yeah. If yeah, well, I know, I I know we're, uh, I know you're busy, and I know you're, <laughs> you have a schedule to keep to. Uh, I just had yeah. a, a few questions before we kind of end here, and you had mentioned that you had like the scrapbook. And you had mentioned this sort of what's next. You already know what's next. Uh, would you be able to give us a little, um, a little view as to what that is? <laughs> um, so for five years, I traveled pretty consistently as a traveling freelance model. And, you know, that, that was kind of like the overview. I was doing that over and over and over again with different creative folks. And then this year, I decided to take for about a six-month period, this creative art director 
position at the warehouse, you know, being around other creative folks doing other creative mediums. And it's changed my perspective. It's changed, um, I think, who I am and how I want to create art. And um, it also made me realize that I've constantly surrounded myself by things that made me feel comfortable. and I wasn't stepping outside of my comfort zone. And sure, I'm a nonconformist in a lot of ways, but I'm not really that nonconformist. I had one foot in the world and one foot in the nonconformity world. And that's not really truly one or the other. So this year, I'm just going to kind of straddle two, two places, two places in a way. Yeah. And I, I think it's great. And that's, that can be super successful. And I think that when you have two extreme oppositions, that's the best place to be is in the middle, but to truly experience one, which obviously society tells you to conform over and over again and being in school, you're conforming and doing this and this and this you conform. So I've experienced that. But what I haven't experienced is truly 100% completely falling in the other direction and you know, not detrimental to my own health, but this year I'm, I'm going to throw spaghetti at a wall and just follow that. I kind of have an idea where I want to maybe work at an organic farm or run away and join the circus or go and make um, these rusted um, reclaimed pieces of metal into art uh, by this guy that I met in Buffalo. So I'm just going to go and travel and live even more non-conforming than what I was doing before, but truly free fall and experience that experience yeah so, well i think uh <laughs> i think you just probably made a lot of people jealous i think uh you might have some people that want to jump on board with you <laughs> that's the beautiful uh, part about my bohemian traveling circus act is that it, you know anyone that's willing to be a part of that they can come and join yeah uh i might join you then <laughs> but um then a, a couple yeah. a couple uh, a few a few kind of quick questions what are um, some books that you're reading or, or what's one of your favorite books? Um, let's see. I, I haven't really actually read books in, in a minute. I've been listening more to podcasts. Okay. Um, what's, what's one of your favorite podcasts then? Query with Cameron Esposito. Query? Is a really, really, yeah. Query, like queer with a Y on the end. Q-U-E-R-Y. Why? Yeah. Um, because like we were talking about earlier, it's a new thing for American culture to suddenly have become so aware that your perspective isn't the only perspective in the world. And we are starting to form language around what these individual concepts, feelings, perceptions are like. And it's truly remarkable in the sense that Queer is such a big umbrella word that, that means so many different things. And while we don't exactly have the language yet, we're developing it. And what she does is she invites people to have conversations about what their identity is, what their background experiences are, and how they've formed those identities. And sometimes I've related to gay men in ways that I was like, wow, had I not been exposed to this conversation, I would have never known that we have that thing in common. Or we formed that opinion the same way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you wouldn't have known that unless you were exposed to that. So yeah. yeah. Then query. Uh, um, people need to check watched, that out. Oh, and there's a beautiful documentary on uh, Netflix about Hedy Lamar, who also was a Hollywood movie star. And she was also reduced to shut up and be pretty, but was a brilliant 
um, innovative. She actually designed the technology that we use now today for Wi-Fi. Wow. And there's also a lot of, um, <laughs> I'm watching a lot of comedy because through humor, you can take a um, harsher perspective. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, any no, black folks that are doing stand-up comedy, they have important things to say. They need to be listened to. And one of the last things that I'll leave you with is um, 13th is a documentary that you can watch on Netflix. I think it's really important. A lot of white folk need to listen to it, understand how the prison system has been constructed in America. Um, and then Hannah Gadsby is an Australian queer woman who did stand up and said a lot of really important things. And her stand up is also available on Netflix called Nanette. I've, I know I've seen I I know I've seen that on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet, but I know that's one that's kind of making the rounds as far as recommendations. So yeah, that that's definitely that's definitely a good a good uh, heads up. Um, yeah. Then to wrap it up, where can people uh, contact you or check out your work, or how, how do you want them to contact you? Do you prefer Instagram, or I know you mentioned Model Mayhem and. I think the best way to get in touch with me is Instagram because I'm kind of iffy about using other platforms. Although I say that with reluctance because the power isn't really in the artist's hands with Instagram. Like overnight, you can get it taken away. So if people, folks want to reach out to me, the best way is to just email me. That can't get taken away from me. <laughs> Your Instagram handle, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Rory underscore yum, right? Yeah. And then your email, if you wanted to give people that, you're more than welcome to. I mean, they can reach out to me. It's very on at Gmail. That's pretty I'm not easy. that hard to find on the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and uh, no, I I love your work. I've I love working with you, and I'm I'm really glad you took the time to come on the show and and kick things off. Uh, this is this is uh, episode number one, and I I think this is a this has been. I'm already very confident that it's really going to project the show in the right direction. And I really appreciate you, you, your input and your time to do so. Thank you to everyone that has listened. And as this is a new project, we would love to hear your feedback as well as any suggestions you might have. You can contact me at grant at gtrimble.com. That's G-R-A-N-T at G-T-R-I-M-B-L-E.com. Or visit my website for show notes at gtrimble.com. And then click the podcast link. Don't forget to follow Rory and her Instagram handle is Rory underscore yum, as well as my Instagram. That's G Trimble underscore photo. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your loved ones and show your support by spreading the word. The rest will go. Just make me.